scripture reading is from Matthew 28 through 30. It's in your bulletin. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lonely in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning again. Uh, It's a good thing to be with you all once again and also to study God's word together. And so I'm excited to be with you in person, but I'm also glad for those of you who could join us virtually on Facebook and YouTube. Um, Thanks for joining us in worship. And I'd say this, I think Matt said this already, but I'll echo it. If you're new, uh, physically or virtually, I'd love to get to know you. We'd love to get to know you and stick around afterwards. We're going to hang out just outside, or you can send an email, sit at northcrosschurch.com. And to those of you here again, um, this is what it means to be the body of Christ, to be family together, and I'm thankful to see my family. Uh, And so thanks for being here. Thanks for being with us. Uh, So as I said said last week, I spent the last few weeks, we've been talking about the church in a mini-series, we've kind of been asking the question, why or what for, about the church and our individual roles in the church, or individual opportunities in the church. Uh, my hope is that our thoughts for and about the church kind of do spill past this last sermon in a mini-series. Uh, I hope that they will spill past February even, um, out, in, out of this sanctuary and into conversations, conversations at home, conversations with friends, Uh, over meals, uh, over coffee, over beer, over wine, uh, over fire pits, whatever it is, uh, I pray that that would continue to happen. And I hope that we'll continue to think about what it means to be the church so we could act instead of react because we're living in a highly pressurized cultural moment. And it's so important to think and to act biblically first. And so for the last few weeks, we've been asking the question, what does a life of ministry look like? What does ministry or servant leadership look like in the church for men and for women? But we began this series by asking, what is the church and why invest yourself in the church? And I'd like to end our series on the church by readdressing those two big questions. What is the church and why invest ourselves or why invest yourself in the church? Why invest myself in the church? But before I do that, I just ask for you to pray with me and for our time together uh, in God's words to us this morning. Would you pray with us? Father, thank you uh, for the opportunity to talk about something that sometimes feels either very obvious or very uh, difficult, Um, anything but obvious. And I pray that you would be with our hearts no matter where we are. With this topic, with you, would you pursue us? Would you chase us down um, or would you reach out a hand to hold us? And we just need you. Lord, these words are empty. (laughs) This is a a joke of a performance without your spirit. And I pray that you would show up mightily once again, mighty to save. Lord, would you once again rescue us? our hearts and our minds and draw us close to you. And Jesus, would you be at the center of what we have read and what we are about to talk about? 
Would you be high and would you be lifted up? And would you be more believable and beautiful to the eyes of our hearts, our rock and our redeemer? And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So in the summer between my freshman and sophomore years of college, I went all in for soccer. That was my life. The previous summer before, right before my freshman year, I had walked onto the college team and I had spent the year behind a full scholarship goalkeeper ahead of me who was also a freshman. So my freshman fall was riding the bench. If I was lucky, sometimes I didn't even travel. That's how bad I was. They would rather risk not having a backup goalkeeper, just playing a random person from the field than have me backing up the starter. But when the summer came, I was determined to be a better athlete, to earn my spot on the team. Seven days a week, I lifted weights. Seven days a week, I played soccer, oftentimes with multiple teams and multiple times a day. I played with my old high school team, and then I also trained and stayed late fielding shots with the, with the local major league soccer team, the Columbus Crew. And so I showed up in the preseason that next year, right before my sophomore year, in the best physical shape of my life. I had begun to believe that I not only belonged to the team, but I deserved the starting spot. Sadly, my summer plan and my, and my pursuit of athletic glory uh, did not leave me in the best mental and emotional space. And for... I don't know, all of August and most of September, it showed. I was up and down mess on the soccer pitch. And I was an up and down romantic and social mess off the field. But around that time, I heard the Christian gospel message. For the first time in my entire life, oh, Christianity was not about medieval peasants longing for a heaven with indoor plumbing. Oh, Jesus is not about trying really, really hard to keep the Ten Commandments. That's what I thought it was. I heard about Jesus, gentle and lowly in heart, who had come to this earth to meet me where I was, and often, sometimes still am, heavy laden and restless, trying to earn my way to belonging to a starting position by harder and harder and harder work. And one of the first things I noticed about believing in Jesus was how he changed the way I played soccer. I no longer felt so much pressure to play perfectly. I no longer felt like every minute reflected my life, who I was. It be soccer became about giving the glory to God and about getting the joy of the game back. Now I want you to fast forward the tape 10 years. 10 years later, and a lot of things between those things, I returned to the college I went to, to work as a college minister. And I began to do these Bible studies and meet individually with several different student athletes. No matter whether they were runners or swimmers, soccer or basketball players, I noticed that around their sophomore year, all of them didn't really like their sport very much anymore. <laughs> huh, it took some honesty to admit it, but so many of these popular athletic students were just so burnt out 
from practices, games, film study, the weight room, the training room, all of the above, rinse and repeat. And when they thought about or spoke about their sport, they felt so much pressure, restless pressure, and felt so heavy laden and weary. Like for me at the beginning of my second soccer season in college, what had started to go, started as a game, had settled into a daily grinding performance. These students had lost all enjoyment for it. They were failing to remember what it is they loved about the game. No matter how long we've been at North Cross, no matter whether, how long you would claim to be a Christian, or if maybe you don't claim that and you're just here exploring Christianity for the first time from what feels like the outside, you and I can feel burned out about the church. We can feel burned out like those division one athletes felt about their sports. We could forget to remember why we're here this morning, why we even go to church, why we even care to be the church. What is so important or joyful anyway about being the so-called body of Christ? All this can feel so easily like a performance, right? A performance whose demands are overwhelming for about the 10% of us and underwhelming for the other 90%. At times like these, it's important to ask ourselves some good questions. How did I get here? What am I missing? What if I'm missing the point? What if like those college athletes, I've forgotten the love and the joy of the game behind it all? It's in the book of Revelation, the church of Ephesus is told in the middle of just a stream of praises that they've left behind or abandoned the love they had at first for Jesus. In Psalm 51, in the middle of confessing acts of adultery and murder, David prays to God, restore to me the joy of your salvation. So what is lovely and joyful about the church when we're doing poorly, when we're doing well. What is attractive about the church is not a what, it's a who. It's who the church is about, Jesus. So what's attractive is not what, but who the church is about, it's Jesus that's attractive. Jesus is primarily what to love, what to enjoy, what's important about being the church. After all, Jesus is the head and the church is his spiritual body. So often we picture Christianity, we can almost imagine it like the headless horseman and the sleepy hollow legend, right? Carrying Jesus right here as a pumpkin and wandering around blindly. <laughs> That's scary. It's just Jesus's invitation. Seen here in Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30, it's Jesus' invitation to something more that draws us in and keeps us together. Whether we go on a Sunday morning or for a Bible study or a life group or a meal together. So let's look together at Matthew 11 verses 28 through 30. And what one writer calls what is still the most welcoming and encouraging invitation ever offered. And in this invitation, we will see what is so attractive about Jesus and his church. And we'll see, that, we'll see this by letting the text ask and answer three rapid fire questions. First, 
Who does Jesus invite? Who does Jesus invite? Second, what does Jesus invite us to? Third, why accept Jesus's invitation or what makes us accept this invitation? Since this passage is only three verses and a lot of these questions are answered kind of in a way that's kind of woven throughout these verses, this sermon's gonna be a little different in its outline. We're just gonna do those three points and there won't be verses attached to them, but we will work through the passage together. So let's begin with our first, pass- our first question in the passage. Who does Jesus invite? Well, if you look in a Bible, just above verse 28, Jesus is praying publicly and he's praying out loud. And is just praying to God, his father in heaven in verses 25 through 27. So we can imagine Jesus suddenly opening his eyes, snapping his head down to swivel eye level, and in a soft, compassionate gaze towards all those gathered around him. It's in this posture in verse 28 that Jesus says, come to me, all who are labor and are heavy laden. He's looking around then and now, and he's saying, I'm inviting everyone, especially the weary. He's looking around then and now and saying, come on, you belong to. But I can tell you from personal experience that we don't think that's who Jesus is inviting. (laughs) At least I don't. Some of us read this passage and we think that Jesus makes this invitation only one time. You get one shot to respond the right way and good luck hoofing it on your own if you don't respond the right way. Or this invitation is just for people who have not yet believed in Jesus. Jesus, we think that like, this is not a passage for Christians and as if we don't need Jesus to call us back to him over and over and over again on the regular. What is sin if it's not wandering away from Jesus? from this invitation to find our best life. I love the way that Barbara Duguid honestly writes about the Christian life in a book called Extravagant Grace. She grew up in an enthusiastic missionary household. And at a young age, 21 years old, she takes two years and goes to Africa on a mission trip. And then she comes back to the United States and she marries a young man training for the ministry to work in a local church full time. And there she is in a church as a seminary wife, listening to a young woman whom she's befriended, evangelized, and helped lead to the Lord over the last several months. And this woman, Heather, is sharing about everything that's happened to her to make her a Christian, except the one thing that Barbara is intensely listening for. Heather neglects to mention Barbara's name. That's what Barbara was listening for. You see, Heather goes, it's all about what the Lord did this, and it's all about the Lord did that. But Heather doesn't even once mention all the socially awkward conversations and meals and time that Barbara endured with her. And then in the middle of Barbara's desperate hatred of what she perceived as Heather's ingratitude, the Holy Spirit showed Barbara a powerfully convicting truth. You are a glory hound and a limelight lover. This is not your story, it's the Lord's story and all the credit and glory belong to him. But God wasn't done there and sometimes that's where we think he stops because Barbara reflecting at that moment writes that she expected and deserved rebuke, disappointment and rejection from Jesus. And instead she writes, he, Jesus, 
extended love, compassion, and infinite patience with my brokenness and weakness. I felt loved and treasured by God, even though I had done nothing that had yet changed in me. On that day, sorrow and gratitude rushed through my heart together as joyful companions for the first time. What I so appreciate about Barbara sharing this scene from her story is that it shows both the ways we can think Jesus' invitation is for somebody else. It shows us both the ways we can think that. We have, it shows us the pride that says, I got this. I don't need your help anymore, Jesus. And at the same time, it shows us the despair that says, I don't deserve your help anymore, Jesus. It's like that Halsey song, Sorry, where she apologizes about treating the people she loves like jewelry, trying them on and then putting them off again. She confesses she runs away when, th- when people are good to her because she never really understood the way you laid your eyes on me. And there's this desperately catchy chorus in that song where she underlies the self-contempt behind how she pushes and pulls at other people, the people that love her, that she loves. Sorry that I can't believe that anybody ever really starts to fall in love with me. Sorry that I can't believe that anybody ever really starts to fall in love with me. Whether you've been a Christian for a long time or you're just hearing about all of this for the first time, we can often assume Jesus's genuine invitation just doesn't apply to me, to us. We, can, we don't understand the loving way he lays eyes on us because we don't believe anybody ever really starts to fall in love with people like me. We've done too much. We've done too little. We are too much. We are too little. We imagine Jesus only wants the best of the best, Navy SEALs, varsity division one spiritual athletes. We assume that, we're, that there's some physical we fail. There's some tryout that we will underwhelm in. But Jesus is actually asking for just this kind of person, you and me and all of our self-conscious weakness. After all, failure is what makes us fit to receive grace. I love the way that Dale Bruner describes who Jesus especially reaches out to. Only a certain kind of person is invited by Jesus. Jesus invites those who are having a hard time of it, those for whom life is hard work and who feel overwhelmed. The needy are those to whom Jesus has consistently addressed himself and for whom he's always there. Jesus' invitation goes out to all those for whom life has been a grind, to those in a word for whom the juice has gone out of life, and all that's left is the rind. Jesus' heart goes out to them, these people, serious but discouraged. They want to be good, to please God, to help people, but they feel quite selfish, quite unup to the task, quite inadequate. Jesus invites them. He invites us. He invites you and me. And so listen to the way that Joseph Hart fleshes out the full implications of verse 28 in this invitation. This is how he writes this hymn. Come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. He's able. He's able. He's willing. Doubt no more. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires, 
is to feel your need of him. And Joseph Hart moves us to our second question to try and get at what makes Jesus and his church so attractive. What does Jesus invite us to? In verses 28 and 29, Jesus is inviting all of us, weary and performing, to just belong on the team, to gain or to keep that some kind of starting position. Jesus invites all of us to himself, and especially his rest and the equipment for life's journey, his yoke. <laughs> when we read verses like this, this seems like a contradiction, right? Like there's a yoke and rest. <laughs> Right? Jesus, you're talking about a yoke and rest. Physically, a yoke is an agricultural work instrument used to harness animals to plow fields. Feels hardly restful. Spiritually, in Jesus' day, a yoke was a Jewish metaphor for discipleship. Your mind and heart would be under a specific teacher and his wise teachings, usually focusing on Old Testament laws, but then going from there and adding a bunch. Hardly restful. If Jesus is inviting workers who are weary to rest. We'd expect him to invite us to a bed, at least a chair, right? Not a metaphor about a heavy rod laid upon sweaty shoulders of beasts of burden. And so we can look at this metaphor of a yoke, or we can look at the other weary Christians around us, or just our own weary heart as a Christian, and we can think Jesus' invitation is, is too difficult or just another responsibility to bear. And let's be really honest, moving deeper into Christian community, committing to a church study, a life group, a North Cross relationship can feel like just another thing to add to our schedules. But before we go there, before we go there about like what to do, or about like the guilt and exhaustion we feel about what to do. Before we go there, go where Jesus invites us first. Jesus is not primarily first inviting us to do anything, but come to him. He says it, verse 28, come to me. As opposed to the other great philosophers of, or world religious figures, people like Socrates or Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, right? Jesus does not point away from himself towards a true teaching. He's not primarily giving us a technique. He's not primarily giving us a life management uh, strategy to apply, a pill to pop. Jesus is true discipleship. His true teaching includes himself. He's not just the teacher, he's the subject matter. In the original Greek in verse 29, this is an intentional ambiguity, a vagueness there, okay? Jesus is saying both learn from me as well as learn of me. It can and, and should be translated both of and from. Learn of me and learn from me. And what is Jesus like? He's gentle and lowly of heart. He's full of rest. <laughs> Did you know gentle and lowly is the only description of Jesus' heart, his core character in all of the New Testament? And what is Jesus at pains to tell us about? Let us know about Jesus, that he is gentle and that he is kind and humble. 
clearly we need this reminder. My image of Jesus, especially when it's been a while since we really last talked, I imagine him as harsh, indifferent, disappointed so quickly in me. But what if Jesus wasn't giving us the silent treatment in our prayer life? What if he wasn't preparing to deliver a dress down speech to end all losing dress down speeches in a locker room? What if he had wide open arms and you don't need to say anything, smile on his lips? And the imagery of Jesus's invitation corresponds with this image of Jesus's heart, right? Same verse 30, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Dale Bruner again points out that a yoke is not worn alone. It's meant to be borne by two animals in tandem as part of a team. And so Jesus is saying, become my yoke mate, join my team. Jesus is too much of a realist to offer us an empty escape from life's loving burdens. Instead, he promises his presence, his saving presence. In the words of a friend of mine, Sammy Rhodes, Jesus is inviting himself over to be with you always in the full weight of his patient and kindness and faithfulness and love. It's not us saying, Jesus, I've got this. It's Jesus saying, I've got you. You put the load right on me and his love is strong enough to hold all of your sin, all of your shame, all of your wounds, all of your struggle, all of your mess. And his love does not even budge. He's carrying the full weight the full freight of whatever you are going through and whatever you are afraid to talk about. And so with Jesus yoked beside us, swollen, pumping with resurrection proof love, we move from trying to earn some time with God to actually trusting him. From moving toward God and prayer, scripture reading, sacraments, being with the church, with sort of a teeth set on edge self-effort. We move from that to doing these exact same things with humility, <laughs> failing, yes, but coming back for more. Living as if this invitation were true and given by Jesus over and over and over again. And so to quote one of my favorite sermons of all time, the banner we live our Christian lives under would change. It would not be working on my sin to achieve an intimate relationship with God. You know, like he's so far away, I'm trying so hard, don't you see me, don't you care? Instead, the banner would read, standing with God, with my sin in front of us, working on it together. That is on my worst day, I'm in Jesus Christ and he's in me. God won't. God can't love me any more or any less because I'm yoked to Jesus by faith. And Jesus is yoked to me by his grace. And it's this yoke, this committed relationship to Jesus, someone to give ground to, to submit to, to put my shoulders underneath with. He's where I can find rest in life's challenges, where I can find comfort in life's afflictions. And it's out of this relationship with Jesus that I can not just belong, but I can reach out and invite other people into belonging. In the early church, under heavy persecution from the Roman Empire, do you know what two Christians would do when they met for the first time? They didn't really know 
who the other one was. One would scratch half an outline of a fish in the dirt in front of him, and the other would complete that outline of a fish by scratching the other side of the fish with his toes. The fish, the ichthus in Greek, was an acrostic. That just means that the le each letter of the word ichthus stood for a word and a phrase of faith. Jesus Christ of God the Son is Savior. Jesus Christ of God the Son is Savior. This was the gathering force of the early church. And it was really what has, the church has always been about. What makes it attractive? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, having mercy on me, a sinner. And you've likely heard me say this, but I'm going to say it again. By God's design, the church is that community that exists for the sole purpose of getting you and me to hear, to see, to taste, to touch, to smell Jesus' sweet mercy together, even when we have to wear masks. Everything we're about begins and ends is all about this fish Messiah. But what exactly makes Jesus' mercy so attractive and not smell like, well, unrefrigerated fish. And so we land on our third and final point, right? Why or what makes us accept Jesus's invitation? Why accept this invitation? And look, I'm just tempted to read these three gospel power packed verses once again over you, once again, but I'll resist. Instead, I let me just do this. I'm gonna do, I'm gonna do my best to illustrate what this, why this invitation is so very attractive. And this might not shock you, but I'm going to turn to a children's book. In her book, The Miraculous Journey of Edward Tulane, Kate D. Camillo tells the story of a cherished toy bunny named Edward Tulane and his gentle and kind owner, a young girl named Abilene. Edward begins his journey as a snob. He feels very little. He thinks only of himself, mostly of his precious porcelain body and his finely knit uh, clothing accessories. <laughs> but over the course of the novel, Edward is humbled, and he slowly begins to feel things and think about other people, mostly through getting lost and being neglected and trading owners. Edward feels happiness, and he feels relief, but he also feels fear and longing and sadness and pain. By the end of the story, Edward Tulane finds himself propped up on a shop in a used doll shop on a shelf there. And each new pretty doll put next to him anxiously talks of the hope of being found and, brought and bought, bought home by a new owner. But Edward's life experience and months and months of waiting and being passed over makes Edward not want to hope. He prided himself on not hoping, on not allowing his heart to lift inside of him. He prided himself on keeping his heart silent, immobile, closed tight. I'm done with hope, thought Edward Tulane. Eventually, an old antique baby doll is placed next to Edward, and she says aloud, I wonder who will come for me this time. Someone will come. Someone always comes. Who will it be? Edward cynically replies, I don't care if anyone comes for me. I'm done with being loved. I'm done with loving. It's too painful. And I love this line. To this response, the old doll replies, pish. 
Where's your courage? Open your heart. Someone will come. Someone will come for you. And sure enough, Edward, despite himself, begins to open his heart and someone does come. But not just anyone. It's a woman who's old now and with a child of her own. And she enters Edward's used doll shop and she follows her daughter over to gaze at Edward. And then she dropped her umbrella. She put her hand on the locket that hung around her neck. And Edward saw that it was not a locket at all. It was a watch, a pocket watch. And it was his pocket watch, the one he used to have with his first owner, his first someone who loved him, Abilene. Edward, said Abilene. Yes, said Edward. Edward, she said again, certain this time. Yes, said Edward. Yes, 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 it's me. Jesus, the Son of God, is Savior. This means Jesus will come for you, even when we lack the courage to hope, even when we, all we have is restless and weary cynicism about all of this. I love how Eugene Peterson puts it. For 50 years, he snuck into his son's room at night and whispered, whispered softly over his sleeping head the same message over and over again. God loves you. He's on your side. He's coming after you. And he's relentless. Would you pray with me? Father, I confess my heart's no better than a toy bunny's. I close it up because I think you've left me behind so often. And I pray that you'd use even this moment in my life and the life of so many here to open our arms, open our hearts again to each other, but most of all to you. Lord, we confess life can be painful. The answers can feel few. But Lord, we also confess that you are the son of God and you're a savior. And that's what you do. You're that someone who comes lo looking for us and you'll come and you'll bring us home. Lord, help our unbelief. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.